Well, good morning, everyone. That was all right. That was all right. That was all right. Well, I'm glad to, uh, I'm glad to have the opportunity this morning to, uh, to share with you uh, from the book of Judges. And, and let me just say um, thank you really quick for the last two years. Um, you know, to Derek's point, our, our joke is that the last, the last year has been the longest decade of my life, right? That um, with, with everything we've had to go through, but um, there's no other place that I'd rather be than to, hear, to be here and to serve you um, each week. It's a blessing to me and to our family, and I'm grateful, so thank you. Um, but this morning, um, I, I, we're going to continue on in our, in our series through the book of Judges, and I, I hope you've enjoyed this time through the book of Judges. Now, Judges is not really one of those books that a lot of people usually go, yay, Judges, let's study that book. But um, hopefully, over the first part, and as we're, we're getting closer to the end now, um, hopefully you've learned something. And I know for me, it's been really eye-opening to see um, how God works in spite of his people a lot of times. We see that over and over again in the book of Judges, and um, I think that we could look throughout history and see that as well, that um, God works in spite of his people and, and often our disobedience. Um, but our God is good, is he not? Our God is good, is he not? He's good. Our God is good and loving, and we can trust in him. He loves his people through thick and thin. He's gracious. He's kind to us, and we can trust him. And this week, as we get to the book, uh, or to the chapter, to chapter 17 in the book of Judges, it's really a transition point for us in the book of Judges. Up until this point, we've really had this sort of 30,000-foot view of what's been going on in Israel, that we've sort of bounced from judge to judge that God has used to deliver his people over and over again, the people of, of Israel at large. And chronologically, Samson was the last judge of Israel. Um, chronologically, he was. But you may be saying, well, we have five chapters left in this book. What are we going to do with that? Well, I'm glad you asked. So today, we're, we're going to start drilling down, and we're going to see how average people were living during this time in the history of Israel. Sort of, you go from that 30,000-foot view to the surface view. What was going on with just regular people during this time in uh, Israel's history? We're going to look at how did the common man live or woman live in that time. That's really the focus of the next five chapters, the last five chapters of the book. And as we'll see over the next few weeks, it wasn't a very promising picture that's painted here for us. Um, but but before, we, before we get any deeper in that, I, I want to ask you guys a question this morning. Um, did any of you have a favorite toy that you played with when you were growing up? This is the audience participation portion. So did any of you have a favorite toy that you played with growing up? Yes or no? Yes? Okay, what, what was it? Anybody want to yell it out? What was your favorite toy? What was that? Say it louder. I can't. Doll. A doll. Okay, a doll house. A doll house. Absolutely. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Okay, a cap pistol. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. What else? What's that? Monster trucks. Did I hear that? Oh, okay. Gotcha. Trucks. Okay, dump trucks. Gotcha. Um, well, well I, I, had, I had some favorite toys as well, okay? Did I hear that wrong? Was it not dump trucks? What was it? Tonka truck. Tonka truck. Well, there is a Tonka dump truck. See, so I wasn't that far off. Okay, so I'm good. I had one of those too. Actually, Merritt has one now. So um, I, I had some toys that I played with as well. And, and in fact, I brought some pictures this morning that, that I want to show you. First, I, I was a really big fan of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, loved the Ninja Turtles. Uh, so hopefully you can see this picture here. 
Yeah, like I was a huge fan of Ninja Turtles and um, just, you know, loved Ninja Turtles. I, I played with them. Merritt has some of my Ninja Turtles that he plays with even to this day um, that, that he plays with. Um, as a kid born in the 1980s, I was a big fan of Transformers. Um, you know, so Transformers were cool. I mean, it's the best of both worlds. You get robots and cars, right? Um, also, who couldn't love the Avengers? I was a big fan of the Avengers and um, especially Incredible Hulk. Um, so I, I was a big fan of, of, of the Avengers. I mean, superheroes are just so much fun, right? Um, and, and then also, you know, my absolute favorite thing to play with growing up and still is um, our, our Star Wars toys. I was a rabid fan. I mean, all you had to do is come by my office uh, or, or see my arm. I mean, I, I have my baby Yoda socks on this morning, as a matter of fact. Um, but th these were just some toys that I loved to play with as a kid. Um, but real quick, though, uh, did you guys notice anything about those pictures in particular that I showed you? Anything? Yeah, they're, they're a little bit off, are they not? I mean, we have here um, the new style Ninja Tortoise, right? Which is not the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, it's the new style Ninja Tortoise. And then we have, um, you know, the Friends Tromers uh, that, that we have here. We had um, my personal favorite, the Incredible Fella, one of the Revengers, right? He's an incredible fella. Um, and then I'm fairly confident that Yoda has a goatee uh, there. <laughs> the Stars Warriors. Um, you know, they're not the genuine article, right? These are cheap knockoffs that, we, that are trying to present themselves as the real thing. And nothing against the dollar store. I love the dollar store. But this is the kind of toys you find at the dollar store, right? It's not typically the real thing. They're, they're a little bit off. They're close enough that you go, oh, yeah, that's the real thing. Wait a minute. Something's wrong here, right? So there's, they're a little bit off. And the reason I bring these up is that we have a very similar situation in our passage from Judges today. Something is just a little bit off. It looks close to the right thing, but it's a little bit off. Things are distorted in a way that we know they're wrong, even though they sort of look right. So let us read chapter 17 of the book of Judges. So follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, or, and he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. And in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? 
And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place for myself. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest. Now, unfortunately, one of the things that we find in this chapter is we get this refrain that um, we heard it here in verse 6, and we'll hear it several more times through these final chapters of, um, of Judges, but it's this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. For the next couple chapters in Judges, uh, idolatry becomes the main thrust of what we see. Idolatry is wrong because it misrepresents God. God, the maker of all things, is not like anything that human beings can create. So no matter how close of a representation that we think we can make of God, it's never going to fully depict God, and it misrepresents who He is. And as we shall see, idolatry nearly always try, becomes a means of trying to manipulate God to, evil ward, to either ward off evil or get what we want from Him. That's typically what idolatry becomes. And while most of the book has been about God delivering the Israelites from external threats, in chapter 17 we see that the focus shifts to internal things, where there is this religious and moral decay that is weakening Israel from within. So the enemy in these next few chapters is Israel. Israel is its own worst enemy. It's shown specifically in the worship practices of Israel in these chapters. We're going to see that here in just a moment. But the question, remember we've, throughout this book of Judges series, we've been asking a question each week. And the question this week, I would encourage you to write this down, is what happens when God's people forget whose they are? What happens when God's people forget whose they are, who they belong to? Well, there's four things that we can see in this passage uh, that I think that we can learn about worship. And just a side note of how good God is, when we planned for me to preach on this Sunday earlier in the year, we did not plan for it to be about worship, and yet it is, and here we are. And um, I'm excited about the, the fact that I get to preach about worship for you. Um, so in, in verses 1 through 6, the first thing that we see is that worship not done God's way is empty. Worship not done God's way is empty. Now, the, the scene in Judges 17, it opens in the hill country of Ephraim. And this should ring a bell for us. There have been several times where we have talked about this area of Israel already in the book of Judges. That um, back in uh, Judges 2.9, that is where Joshua was buried. The great leader who took over from Moses when Moses passed away, Joshua the leader of Israel, is buried in the hill country of Ephraim. Um, we saw in Judges 3.27 that the judge Ehud um, had sounded his trumpet there. We saw in chapter 4 that it is where Deborah held court, where she judged when she was the leader. Uh, and in chapter 7, Gideon sent messengers there to call the men of Ephraim to fight against the Midianites. And so this is a, a familiar location in Israel for us, but it's in a very different way. Like, we're not seeing a judge here. We're just seeing a man. It begins with a man and his mother 
who seem to have no idea what being an Israelite is supposed to look like. They have totally lost their way. And really, in chapter 17, verse 1, we enter in the middle of a story. And what we can see here is that Micah, as a son, has stolen 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. And that is a fortune. It is a ton of money. And he has stolen it from his mother. And she doesn't know that, but she has pronounced a curse on whoever stole the money. And then we pick up and we see that Micah feels bad about it, right? Man, mom, I feel bad about it, especially since you've pronounced this curse on whoever stole this money from you. I feel bad about it. He owns up to stealing the silver, and he gives it back to her. And what's it, what does she do? It says there in, uh, in, at the end of verse 2, he says, I took it. His mother said, well, blessed be my son by the Lord, the one who stole a fortune from me. Blessed be him by the Lord, right? That she reverses the curse and asks the Lord to bless her son and even says, I'm going to devote this money to the Lord for a carved image to be created. So on, on one level, you could look at this and say, well, you know, I mean, it's, it's a good story, right? I mean, the guy felt bad about it. He had stolen some money, but he gives it back. And she says, well, you know, God bless you for giving it back to me. And, and I'm going to devote this money to the Lord. And yet at the same time, everything about this story is ridiculously irregular. It is not right. Nothing is the way it's supposed to to be. A woman consecrates money to the Lord to have an idol made with it? That's ridiculous, right? I'm consecrating this money to the Lord so that it might be used for sin, is what she says. And then there's this man whose name is Micah, and Micah, that name means who is like Yahweh. He makes household gods. He creates this false religion structure in his own home. And Micah, as we'll see here in just a moment, he knows that only Levites should be priests. He decides to make his own son the priest in his home. And not to mention, what, what happened to the other 900 pieces of silver, right? That she says, there's, of this 1,100 pieces of silver, I'm going to devote it to the Lord. And yet she only uses 200 of it to be used to make this idol. What happened to the other 900, right? The whole scene is distorted. The whole scene is wrong. But the tragedy here is not so much that it's wrong, even though that is tragic. The tragedy is that neither Micah nor his mother give any indication of knowing that what they're doing is wrong. They don't seem to understand that. And this is where that refrain comes into play that we talked about earlier, that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What was right in Micah's eyes, what was right in his mother's eyes, was idolatry. That's what they thought was right. Worshiping God with images and idols reveals this inward spirit which does not want to submit to God as he is. God was very, very clear with the Israelites at Mount Sinai that there is to be no carved or graven image of him created. That there is to be no idol. And yet, that's what they do. They create this idol, and it's really one that we get to, where, you, where they are trying to pick and choose the attributes of God that they like in order to create this God that's palatable to them, this God that makes them feel good, this God that makes them think that they are doing the right thing. And in many ways, this is the sin of our day. I mean, how often have you heard somebody say, or have you said yourself, I, I don't believe in a God like that. I don't think of God as blank. 
I don't think that a God who loves people would do blank, right? That's worshiping a God that's made with our own hands. God reveals himself to us in his word, and that is who he is. Like it or not, that's who God is. We can't say, well, I like this part about who God is, but I don't like that part, so I'm going to discount that. That's not how it works. God is who he is, and we accept him or we reject him. As we, um, we can do this without creating physical images. We create idols of ideas, right? Of a God who is only loving and accepts me no matter what I do. We make an idol of that God. Or a God who is only wrathful and he just rains down fire and brimstone on sin from heaven. That's not, a, that's not the only aspect of God, right? You following with me here? That God is ultimately loving and he is ultimately just. Those things fit together in tandem, and you can't choose one and not the other or vice versa. God is both of those things. And yet, Micah and his mother have created this idol of their own creation. The most serious way that we do this, the most serious way that we create idols, is by consciously rejecting part of the revelation of God found in Scripture. We do this when we say, I can no longer accept a God who does this. Or, I can't accept a God who forbids that. I can't accept a God who won't let me do this. When we make statements like this, we have sacrificed our faith on the altar of being progressive. And that's a dangerous place to find ourselves. God was the same yesterday, today, and forever. God has not evolved with the times like we have, right? God is who he says he is. His truth has been the truth from the beginning, and it will be the truth until the end. Amen? That is who God is. Micah was creating some new religion that was contrary to what God had revealed to his people. And the problem is that it's easy to use a lot of God language, claiming to have Jesus as our Lord, but in reality, only obey him in certain sectors of our lives and preserving other areas in which we live as we decide. And... Uh, at the risk of stepping on some toes, I think we're all guilty of this at times. That we say, well, I trust God with everything, everything except for that. Or, God, you have complete control over my life, over absolutely everything. Well, not, uh, not that thing, though. But everything else, that's all yours, God. The problem with this is that we have created an idol of that thing. This thing is untouchable by God, we say. That we have rejected that God is, control, is in control of all things. The fact that Micah ordains one of his sons to be a priest goes directly against the Mosaic law that only those of the tribe of Levi were to be priests. But this homemade religion that Micah is creating breaks all of God's directions, does it not? He's created idols. He's worshiping in a way that he wants to. He's not worshiping in the place that God has told him to worship. He's not worshiping how God has told him to worship. They are not worshiping God's way. This is religion on Micah's terms, according to Micah's personal preference. It's a religion that's not about God and his truth, but about Micah and his ideas. It's a religion that's comfortable for Micah, but it's not a religion that's going to bring blessing or rescue. It's empty. It's empty. So I want to ask you this morning, are, are you only worshiping God in certain sectors of your life? Are there things that you've put up a wall and said, no, this door's closed, God, you can't have that? Are you holding areas of your life back? 
Well, while some of us think that way, and I have thought that way in the past, God is not okay with that. God demands total control of us. If we are to worship God properly, we must give all of our life over to Him. And if we are to worship God properly, we must do it on His terms. We don't get to call the shots. We are not in a position of authority where we get to say, God, I'm going to worship you, but I'm going to do it like this. No, God says, you worship me the way I tell you to worship me. And in the, the result of that is blessing and rescue and joy and peace and love. And we get all of those things from God when we approach him on his terms. But not only is worship not done God's way empty, but secondly, worship cannot be made right by religious practice. Worship cannot be made right by religious practice. We, we have this second scene of chapter 17 and verses 7 through 12 where a young Levite sets out from his home to look for a better life for himself, and he happens upon Micah's house. And Micah finds out that he's a Levite, and he wastes no time in making this Levite an offer he can't refuse. That the Levite can't believe his good luck, and he accepts the offer to become the priest of Micah's shrine, and Micah ordains him. It seems like things are looking up for Micah, right? I mean, he's legitimized his operation. It's a legit operation now. He's got a Levite as the priest. But hold on just a second. <laughs> I've got some questions here. A, a closer look really shows that things, again, are just distorted enough that as they were with the Incredible Fella earlier, something's just not right. It's the Incredible Hulk, not the Incredible Fella. Does everybody understand that? Okay, just want to make sure. So, first, this Levite, his actions are really abnormal. First off, he's going out to find a better life for himself. Well, if we were to turn back, we don't have time this morning, but let me paraphrase it for you. If we were to turn back to Joshua 21, the Levites had been allocated cities to live in with pasture land that was attached to them for their livestock. And Bethlehem, where this Levite leaves from, was not one of those cities. It was not one of the Levitical cities. And so my first question, what's this Levite doing living in Bethlehem to begin with? Now, I, I want to, let's give the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he didn't have any control over that. Maybe his parents moved there and that's where he was born. That's fine. But we can't stop there. <laughs> the family of Aaron were to serve as priests. And the rest of the Levites were to assist them. They had uh, income that they would live off of that would come from their livestock, and they were to be supported also by the tithes of the Israelites. So the Levites were set up to succeed by God. That was the, um, the model that he created. So there should have been no need for this Levite to look for a better life for himself. He should have had the support of living in one of the Levitical cities and living off of the means that God had provided. But... His willingness to accept Micah's offer when he comes into the town shows that he either had no idea what God had set up for the Levites or he didn't care anymore. He wasn't worried about that. Either way, his behavior at the very least shows that there is incredible disorder in, the, in Israel at, these time, at this time. Micah's actions are off as well. I mean, he shows that he's at least aware of a traditional connection between the Levites and the priesthood because he wants to legitimize his shrine by having a Levite as a priest. Um, and, and just another question, what, what happened to his son? 
He had, he had ordained his son as a priest, right? Is it just, uh, hey, buddy, you're out now. There's this Levite in town. Or had something happened to his son where he didn't have a priest anymore? Is he just pushed out of the way? Who knows? The, the scripture doesn't tell us. But regardless, Micah thinks that adding this religious practice to his idol worship will make things right. But the reality is, nothing has changed at Micah's shrine except for the officiating priest. It is still a homemade shrine with homemade idols and homemade worship that is against everything that God had shown the Israelites. In fact, it's really only increased how scandalous the whole scene is by connecting someone who should have been devoted to the service of God alone. It connects him with the worship of idols and this Levite. None of this scene is governed by respect for God's law or a desire to honor him as the creator of the universe. This has all been about serving their own interest. We have to be careful about this in our own lives as well. Idolatry is still idolatry, even if God's name is invoked and a Levite is employed to give the appearance of respectability. Idolatry is still idolatry, even if you're coming into this room and sitting on, this pews, sitting on these pews or saying, I love God or God bless us all. Idolatry is still idolatry. It is possible for us to perform tasks associated with worship in an idolatrous way. Just plastering the name of God on an action where we are seeking our own interest is using the Lord's name in vain. And I'm pretty sure that God was clear about not doing that, was he not? Doing something that we say is an act of worship when really we're looking to gain something from it, that's not worship. That's idolatry. The Pharisees were guilty of this very thing. They loved their religious practices, right? This is what Jesus railed against in the Pharisees. They loved their religious practices, but they loved their religious practice at the expense of actually loving God. They loved religion. They didn't love God. Adding more rules and religious practices did not correct their worship. It actually pushed them further away from God. Religion became their idol. And if we're not careful, the same can be true for us. Now, I want you to be here every week. I want you to be in this place for community because we need that. We need the body of Christ. But I hate to break it to you. Perfect church attendance is not your ticket into heaven. Perfect attendance at all church activities is not where God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Our ticket into heaven is a relationship with our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we never, ever get that distorted. The way that we get to spend eternity with our Savior is by trusting that He is our Savior. Amen? Everybody tracking with me there? It is not any religious practice. There is nothing that we can do where God says, that's a person I want on my team because look at how good He is. Romans is clear that there is no one good, not one, only Christ. So, worship that's not done God's way is empty. Worship cannot be made right by religious practice. And to cap it all off, verse 13 closes this scene by taking us below the surface and showing us why Micah has acted the way he has. Look at what it says. Let me read verse 13 to you. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. Worship is not a means to an end. Worship is not a means 
to an end. Everything that Micah and his family have done up to this point has been about people using religion to serve their own interests. We have a mother who indulges her son. We have a Levite who has gone out to try to secure a better life for himself. And we have Micah who is looking to achieve prosperity by adding this veneer of religious activity to his idolatrous shrine. Micah has set forth these religious efforts to get access to God so that he can get God to do what he wants. Micah has been using worship as a tool for personal gain. It's the exact opposite of what God desires in worship. God wants us to worship him by giving him our hearts and glorifying him. Not by glorifying him so that we might gain something. Idolatry was very typical of the pagan, pagan world. It still is typical of the pagan world. But this story is not a story about pagans. It's the Israelites. Micah and his family and the Levite, they were members of the, Isra- uh, uh, members of the Israelite family. This is about idolatry in the life of the people of God. For them, this is the most inexcusable thing possible. They have rejected their creator. They have rejected their God and said, I'm going to do things my way so that I can get what I want out of that. And nothing could be more damning for us as God's people than to reject him and want something in return. That's not what worship is for. Worship is not a means to an end. Worship is our right response to God revealing himself to us. It is our responding to who God is and seeing that the only proper response is worship. The only proper response is to glorify him. The only proper response is to fall on our face in front of him and to worship. So, Worship not done, God's way is empty. He's he's given us a guide in Scripture for how we should worship Him, how we should approach Him. Worship cannot be made right by adding religious practice to what we are doing incorrectly. And worship is not a means to an end. But finally, the final point that we come to today is that worship is for God. Worship is not for us. Worship is for God. The combined pull of the surrounding culture and the Israelites' own sinful desires to make everything, including religion, a means of gain made the drift toward idolatry irresistible for them. And in the end, the Israelites became so self-deluded that doing what was right in their own eyes seemed not only excusable, but a good thing. To Micah and his mother, what they're doing seems right and good. We look at it and say, well, clearly it's wrong. But the problem is that there is no excuse for not rightly worshiping God. Listen, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it to you. But listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. It says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, 
So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Worship has always and will always be for God and God alone. The problem arises when we place things other than God in the seat that only God can sit in. Worship happens every day in every single person's life. The question is, what is the object of that worship? Are we worshiping the creator of the universe or are we worshiping anything else? See, even Micah knew that God was in charge to some extent because he knew about the Levitical pattern and how he needed to legitimize his uh, shrine there by having a Levite. But he chose to do what he thought was right. And he worships prosperity rather than the God of all creation. When we choose to worship anything other than God himself, we are contributing to an environment of religious chaos that pulls us away from God rather than toward God. Our vision becomes distorted, and everything in our life looks just a little bit off. It's close, but it's a little bit off. Our Yoda has a goatee. Or our Incredible Hulk becomes the Incredible Fella. Or our Ninja Turtles become the New Style Ninja Tortoise, right? It's off just a little bit. When we worship God rightly, our vision of the world becomes clear. There is no cheap knockoff in the place of the genuine creator of the universe. And so, as we close, we can see in this tragic story of Micah that his family is an example of what happens when God's people forget whose they are. We must come to terms with the fact that we belong to God. We were created for Him and by Him, and we belong to God. He is in charge, and we must worship Him on His terms. We are not in a position, nor do we have the perspective, to create worship on our own terms. Unfortunately, the natural tendency of humanity is toward idolatry. And you saw that in the, uh, the book of Exodus when Moses goes up on the mountain to get uh, the Ten Commandments. And as God is writing down, you shall have no graven image. What are the other Israelites doing at the bottom of the mountain? They're creating an idol. They're building an idol as God is telling them, don't do this. That's the natural tendency of humanity. And as Paul wrote, as we read there in Romans chapter 1, we try to exchange the creation for the creator. But here's the great news. God gives us a way out of the pattern of idolatry. For for Israel, God would eventually provide a king to sort out the religious life of the nation that eventually David would come along and he would be the, the example that would pull the nation back toward God. But the fact is, even at this moment in Micah, or in Micah's stories, God was already Israel's king. He was already in charge. And the way out of idolatry was always open to his people if only they would recognize his authority and return to a proper observance of his law. We, today, are called to live in obedience to our King Jesus. Our obedience is an act of worship toward Him.
As we read through scripture and God reveals himself to us, we are to respond in obedient worship toward him. So, have you forgotten whose you are? Are there areas of your life that you're holding back from God saying, God, I don't want you in this sector of my life. I would encourage you today, give those sections over to God. Give him all of yourself. Where are you choosing to not live in obedience to God today? I would encourage you choose to obey the Lord today. Choose to live in obedience to him. Worship him with all of your life. Give God everything. He's worthy of it. He's asked for it. And our right response of worship is to give it back to him. Amen? God is worthy of our all. And so today, as we, as we finish up, we're, we're going to sing these words here in just a moment. Come to the altar. The blood of Jesus Christ has purchased redemption for you. We're going to sing those exact words here in just a moment. And I would encourage you to come to this altar. I know that a lot of times it seems like there's this invisible wall that runs around the front of this room. But there's not. And I know that God speaks to us wherever we are at all times. But there's something really powerful about the symbolic act of saying, God, I'm surrendering to you. And so I come and I get on my face here in front of you. It has nothing to do with the stage. It has nothing to do with the people that are standing up here. It's between you and God. And by symbolically, physically getting up and surrendering yourself to God. That's powerful to say, God, I'm yours and yours alone. My way is not the right way. My needs and my wants are not what's important. God, you're important. So I would encourage you to worship the Lord today. We're going to stand to our feet. Let's go ahead and do that now. And as we do, let God work. Let God mold your heart into the heart that he has created in you, that he desires for you. Let's pray together. God, I pray now that you would work and move. I know that you've been at work. I know that you are working. And God, I pray that you would draw us back to yourself. Remind us of how much you love us and help us to remember that you are good. Father, I pray that we would constantly be redevoting ourselves to you, to live in obedience to who you are. God, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship together.